0: Welcome to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. In this series from DLA Piper, we explore how infrastructure, transport and construction are adjusting to a post-COVID-19 world. We examine the biggest challenges ahead, and how businesses must evolve to meet them, both in the short and in the longer term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers.
1: Hello, I'm Maria Pereira, and I'm an infrastructure projects partner in DLA Piper's finance projects and restructuring group. And I'm here today with Stephen Gray, who's a legal director in our group specialising in climate and sustainability. So we've recently been looking in a lot of depth at the importance of large-scale transport infrastructure projects and how these align with carbon targets. Um, we've been looking at green initiatives, lots of sustainability techniques. But one thing that I guess is really jumping out at me, Stephen, is it's very topical at the moment. And whether that's just because COVID is putting a lot of this into focus, or, or you know, actually, you know, Governments are focusing much more and taking much more seriously their climate targets. What do you think? What What is making this kind of topical at the moment? Why are we talking about it now?
2: Well, I, I think Covid has been, at least in my lifetime, the, the biggest systemic shock that we have experienced. And climate change is a, is a bigger emergency. The type of systemic impact from from Covid is precisely climate impacts have the same characteristics in terms of it being regressive, meaning that it affects the most vulnerable. It is systemic. It can cause the food system to collapse, for example, and it affects large areas of the population. So, so transport is, as you know, a great contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Globally, it contributes 24%. Out of that, three quarters comes from road vehicles, which is cars, lorries, buses, etc., and then followed by aviation and shipping. This highlights the fact that these hard-to-abate sectors requires international collaboration. Now, as you know, we have the Paris Agreement, which was signed in 2015. And that ultimately, the long-term goal of that is to stabilise no concentrations, rather temperature to two degrees or well below that to 1.5. And that means that we have to decarbonize our economy uh, before 2050 or at the latest by 2050.
1: And I guess I, I hear a lot, you know, all well, these targets are aspirational, uh, you know, we're never going to meet them. W- what are you seeing governments do? Are they taking these targets seriously?
2: Well, increasingly they are. I have been working this for far too long. So yes, they are taking it much more seriously now. I mean, we've we've had a, a lot of parliaments and a lot of jurisdictions declaring climate emergency in their jurisdictions. And beyond that, governments are now enacting legally binding targets of net zero. The UK was the first large economy to do so, but there's smaller, very progressive countries like New Zealand that also have a similar target. And there's there's Latin American countries like Chile and Costa Rica which have a similar targets. So we we certainly have seen since twenty fifteen a raise in, in the agenda of climate. And we've also had the fact that the the Financial Stability Board has determined that climate is of of material impact to the financial stability of the world. So in the UK, we have the great example where um, the court uh, ruled that the third runway in Heathrow was not compatible with the UK's commitment to the Paris Agreement. And so we're going to be seeing that much more internationally. And, and in that same regard, the equator principles that you know, uh, we're in version four of the equator principles. They're coming to effect in October and they uh, require, amongst other things, uh, climate uh, impact assessment, but the demonstration of sponsors uh, for their projects to be compatible with the national commitments.
1: Yeah, we're, we're aware of that. So we advised um, the Department for Transport on the expansion of Heathrow Airport. So we're, we're, we're well known to this. Just in terms of the benefits that these initiatives, the government policies um, looking at climate change, they don't just extend to climate, do they? They go beyond that.
2: Yes. And uh, look, we, I mean, in, in high populated areas and urban and centers, there is uh, a lot of impact from, uh, you know, combustion engines uh, in relation to air pollution. This affects a lot. There's a lot of health implications in regards to that. So moving away to cleaner, more efficient ways of transport has a real impact on, on such factors. And also represents a reduction of, of costs that the public has to bear. So in that sense, it is important to quantify the co-benefits uh, of moving away from um, sources of transport that, that have a uh, polluting effect. Hence, we see this move to, obviously, renewable sources of of energy generation that then allow us to produce green hydrogen and ultimately, as well, the electrification of vehicles. These, together with making the network much more efficient, introducing things like uh, bus, rapid transit areas within cities, uh, having much more improved uh, ways of management of traffic, having the infrastructure to be able to charge vehicles in cities allows us to diffuse these technologies throughout. That's
1: right. And and just thinking about kind of this is all critical infrastructure at the end of the day so how how we make sure it's still there and it's resilient do you have any views on that and the kind of impact on, on the resilience there
2: That's a great aspect to to highlight as well, Maria. As you know, climate policy is not just about mitigating emissions, it's about adapting to the impacts of climate change. We are currently already experiencing big impacts in relation to climate change physically. Here in the UK, we have a a recent example where heavy rain led to uh, a mudslide that made a train derail. And this impacts or or massively on the infrastructure. So infrastructure has to be proof for these much more uh, frequent and strength of, of storms and natural events. So, as you know, infrastructure lasts for decades and decades. So we, we need to be able to prove our infrastructure in relation to these increased events. Before, infrastructure used to be proved in relation to the one in 100 year event. Now it's looking more like one in 10 or 15 year event.
1: And from the resilience in terms of climate impact to the resilience when faced with a global pandemic as we are now with COVID, um, I, I Certainly from, from my area of work, I think mass transit is always identified as a very sustainable form of transport and form of mobility. But just how resilient is it from what we've seen in terms of the impact of COVID on that transport system?
2: Well, as you know, as soon as we entered lockdown, we were asked to not to use mass transport, and it was only really allowed for key workers. So, in in those circumstances, it's quite exposed. People are wary of of using public transport due to potential risk of of infection, and they are moving towards more individualized forms of transport.
1: Which clearly doesn't do much good for the climate impact, I guess, in terms of mobility.
2: Well. Yes and no, in the sense that there are opportunities to use technology to help us facilitate mobility. There is a lot of uh, emphasis on individual forms of transport. I I think we shouldn't underestimate the electrification of the two-wheeler, having scooters and bikes on the road that are electric. However, this implies that the distances travelled are shorter. But in the context of of COVID, everything became localised. People were working or are working from home. You did your shopping very locally and you could see the increase in demand for bicycles.
1: And so I guess when we think about kind of global mobility and transport, There probably is still a case for mass transit systems to continue. And there's a question there around how we do make it safer and more resilient against things like pandemics. I know there's a lot of conversations even around the airline industry around things like ensuring there are temperature checks and possibly things like COVID passports to allow safe passengers to travel safely through mass transit um, systems. That does all come at a cost though, doesn't it and And what do you think is it worth that cost in light of the disruption that that a move away from mass transit um, undertakes for those systems?
2: Yes, absolutely, Maria. I think we cannot assume that we are just going to move locally onto wheels as much as that is a, a sustainable approach. But that's just part of the, the policy contribution or policy toolbox. We do need to invest in making mass transit safe in the context of the pandemic. There has been a change in behaviour from citizens, mainly because of this perception that mass transit is, is no longer safe in the context of the pandemic. But as as you mentioned earlier, with Infratech and this investment, we can already start, you know, encouraging people to come back safely and we have seen that it is very costly for governments to have uh, such infrastructure uh, not being used. We have a clear example in France and many other countries where the aviation industry had to be uh, supported directly by governments. Interestingly in France the support came conditional to Air France having a net zero target. So you can see how so governments are using some of these stimulus to incentivize a more sustainable long-term approach to, to mass transit.
1: So there's almost an opportunity there for, for a coordinated effort in light of something that's quite disruptive to bring a bit of cohesion to, to the models going forward, which is which is interesting. Certainly from my perspective and in our experience, we think, you know, we've seen that clear policy decisions and visions from the top um, and a really coordinated and coherent design and planning uh, structure to, to infrastructure generally, you know, tying all the infrastructure pieces together is really important. It makes a difference. What do you think might look different in our cities going forward? If we were designing cities from scratch, knowing what we know today with the global pandemic and and climate and and everything else, what, what would you do?
2: Well, I mean, we can't, as we discussed earlier, we have infrastructure which is with us and will be for decades. So we also need to adapt and use the infrastructure that we have. And it's not necessarily moving away from cars, but it's it's using it better, using it more efficiently. Cars get used like five or six percent of the the time. A a car is normally parked 95 percent of its life. Um, So... Going forward, having a kind of a broader perspective on open streets, on how we relate to streets, how we use streets, how they're not just for large vehicles and adapting to lighter, smaller electric vehicles, for instance, would be a a way of redesigning cities going forward. Nearly a quarter of workers have quit their jobs because of their commute. It's a generic figure. So, I mean, that tells you a lot of the quality of life and the impact that it has on people when you have to be commuting for, for hours to get to your your work or where you have to be. So in that regard, it also represents a integrated approach to facilitating the opportunities more locally and allowing for individuals to have a, a better quality of life through better and more efficient mobility. In the context of the pandemic we saw a dash for bicycles. In the UK alone during the pandemic there's been an increase of over a million new new bicycles people went out mm, and buy.
1: Including many people in our firm I think. <laughs> Just to
2: get it. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I'm an all-time uh, cyclist. I was thinking about this today. I own three bicycles myself. One is a cargo bike, one is a commuter bike, and one is a racer. So I'm certainly biased towards bikes, but ultimately they do provide part of the solution. It's not the only solution. And there are some cities with very strong models that encourage ownership of bicycle and promote e-bikes. Sweden has a very good model. Italy Madrid are are following, and here in in London we've had the scheme ride right to work uh, by scheme for over a decade. So there are more and more incentives out there for for people to to adopt m- better and more efficient uh, ways of mobility.
1: And just on that, Stephen, uh, do, you, do you think this is just a blip? Do you think people are will be kind of riding their bikes for the next two years, and then once COVID disappears, that go back to to the way things used to be or do you think this is kind of fundamental change going forward in terms of how we view mobility?
2: Well there will be some changes which are permanent for sure. Uh, To some extent the five-day week in the office will probably not longer be. People have realised how efficient it is to work from home. Similarly people with international travel have seen how Easy it is to organise a conference call and resolve matters quickly instead of having to jump on a plane and jet over to New York for the day. So there will be changes that are permanent for sure. I don't think we'll be everybody moving to bicycles all of a sudden. There is a, a lot of comfort in travelling in other ways of transport. So the policy response has to integrate the various needs and the various modalities in an effective and efficient way. And in such, bring together also much more equality and impact to daily lives of people that experience the journey.
1: Mm, Yeah. And the social impact, too, I guess, is going to be very important, which brings me on to to the next question, I guess, which is when we're looking at the changing models and, and the way that the way we live and the way we commute and the way we travel and get our goods delivered is changing at a rapid pace. We'll need to think about regulation and how that impacts you know, things like how you ensure safety for, for cyclists on the road and, and what kind of infrastructure do cyclists need on the road, just to, to to name an example. And that, I think, again, from our experience, takes both the public and the private s- sectors to work together to, to bring a coordinated approach. What are you seeing in your realms? What are both the private sector and the public sector doing? Are they having those uh, engagements and talking to each other? Is that something that you're seeing a lot of?
2: Well, there there is certainly a lot of discussion taking place. We advise clients precisely on on these themes. I mean, in the long term, it is certainly a combination of employer-led policies, public sector, broader private sector and investment in the right type of infrastructure to make transport much more sustainable.
1: Great. And I think we'll end on that thought. Thank you so
0: much, Stephen.
2: Thank you, Maria.
0: That was Maria Pereira, an infrastructure projects partner, speaking to Stephen Gray, legal director specialising in climate and sustainability at DLA Piper. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and shouldn't be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss the next episode.